So we're continuing in our series uh, through the book of, of Philippians. And as we go through the book of Philippians, there are different topics that, that come up. And I am always amazed how uh, the next passage of Scripture will touch on a topic that not only deals directly with me and my heart, but then so many other people uh, that I've been talking to. Now, one thing that I know is happening right now is that we are in a season with many, many people in our church who are going through hard times. I mean, just struggling for one reason or another. So, in light of what's going on right now, all right, let's, let's shift our focus for a second, and I'm going to ask you a question, and I want some feedback, and the question is simply this, what are you thanking God for this week? What are you thanking God for this week? What is stirring up your gratitude towards God, something that he has blessed you with? Can you, can you just... Shout out a couple of different things and let me hear about some of the things that you're grateful for. Family. Grateful for family. Excellent. What's that? The rain. Yes, we needed that. I was moving in the rain, so I wasn't thankful for the rain that day. (laughs) But we needed it. Yes. Hospitality of friends. Yep. Okay, progress in, in business. Good. Good. The Beckyus, grateful for the Beckyus, yeah, <laughs> amen, for sure, they just bless uh, so many, so many people. Anybody else? The ability to work. The ability to work. Yes, good, good. Yeah, yeah, oh, we've, been, we've been blessed, and it's so hard to see um, the things that are, that are going on that we've been blessed with when things are falling uh, apart. You know, as I got feedback from you, you know what's amazing is, uh, not, no one says, I am most thankful in the hard times. You know, with the screwed up relationships and unfulfilled desires and, and, and financial burdens and debt and depression and disease, you know, I am most thankful, you know, in times like that. Well, today, this morning, I want all of us to be convinced, including me, that we can, in fact, be thankful when life seems to be falling apart. Right? And I'm not, I'm not saying thank God for everything that's wrong and, and messed up in the world, but we can thank God for the way that uh, pressure can shape us into mature, joyful, wise, peaceful people, no matter what is going on in our life. So let me ask you, I want you to think to yourself, what is it that you're going through right now? What is it that's just kind of sucking the joy right out of your right out of your heart and, and life. And maybe if you're not going through something uh, right now, someone else is and your heart aches for them. I want you to keep that in mind as we work through this passage, okay? Actively listen, actively apply, actively uh, test the scriptures to see if they're, they're true. These verses are addressing how we can respond when the pressure is on and when we're totally stressed out. I am realizing more and more that one of the best books that you can read when you're struggling with pressure and stress is this book of Philippians. The passage that we're looking at is Paul's summary of of knowing how to live if you are in Christ, knowing how to live when the pressure is on. 
He says, we need to think differently than the world when it comes to this. We need to think differently. And, and we'll start with this if you're taking notes. We're going to start with some practical truths. And the first one is this, that stress is not caused by pressure, but by a wrong response to it. I don't know about you, but even when I say that, I feel a little bit of frustration stir up in, in my heart. But one of the things that we learn here is stress is not caused by pressure, but by a wrong response to it. And what is the cause of stress? Well, you know what? Most people think that external pressures cause internal stress. One of the things that you can find online that's been around for a very long time is the life stress inventory scale, Right? And they have all these different things that happen in your life, and they give each one so many stress points. And the number one, the highest stress producer, death, death of a spouse, and they give that 100 points. Number two is divorce. They give that 73 stress points. Jail, 63 points. Uh, number 16, jail, uh, a change in finances, 38 points. And, and number 19, change in the number of arguments with your wife, 35 points. And it just lists them all out. And what they say is if you, got if you got 150 points or less in the last 12 months, there's only a 33% risk of stress-related illness or injury in the next two years. 150 to 300 points, you have a 50% possibility. More than 300 points, you have an 80% likelihood of a significant stress-related problem. And this popular approach is based on the theory that external, external pressures produce internal stress. But look at the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, he, I mean, he just starts listing out all, those, all the horrible things that, that have happened to him. He talks about how he was in and out of prison, that he was whipped severely, that he was exposed to death again and again and again. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once people stoned him, he says. Three times he was shipwrecked, spent night and day in the open sea, constantly on the move. He says, I've been in danger from rivers and banks and even my own countrymen. He said, I'm constantly in danger in the city and in the country and the sea. I've gone without sleep. I've been hungry and thirsty and cold and naked. On top of all of that, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now apply that to the life stress inventory scale. He racks up approximately 4,000 points. And now he's in prison again, facing trial before Nero and possibly execution. And what does Paul do? He writes the book of Philippians known as the letter of joy. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Whatever the circumstances. I think Paul would say that the popular understanding of stress is wrong. That, that stress is not ultimately caused by, by pressure. It's caused by a wrong response to pressure. So responding to, this means that responding to uh, external pressure correctly can lead to contentment and peace and the joy in the middle of the mess. So what is the cure for stress? 
What he teaches us is that the only real remedy for stress is to practice the presence of Jesus. I mean, if we can reduce the external pressure, great, go for it. But I'm telling you, it is not enough. And you know it because you know that you can't control everything that's going on in your life. Some stuff just happens to you, right? But also, but also, some of the external stress comes from following God's call in your life. So if you're going to reduce the stress, guess what? You just ignore God's call in your life? So it's got to be something else, right? God's way of curing stress is for us to practice the presence of Jesus, cultivating an awareness of his presence, that he is with you. And you know what? That's the main point of this passage. I mean, in fact, it's loaded with this presence-type language. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is near. And then a little bit later, in in verse 7, he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then a little bit further down, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you believe that this morning? So how do you practice the presence of Jesus? It basically comes down to focusing your attention on Christ and looking at all of life through the lens of Christ. And the rest of the message, we're just going to spend a little bit of time unpacking what that means and, and how you do that. And what we see here is that God shows us what this looks like by using Paul. In fact, verse 9, Paul says this, that whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So God gives us Paul to show us what this looks like if we are practicing the presence of Jesus. And first, what does Paul say? He says, rejoice in the Lord. The first thing that he says when it comes to practicing the presence of Jesus is to rejoice in the Lord. This is first and this is foundational. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now he doesn't mean, you know, some lame, superficial, praise God anyway kind of happiness. Turn that frown upside down. I mean, he's not shallow like that. What's he getting at? He's talking... Well, the the truth is this also, and what I've learned is that those who rejoice in the Lord are actually able to experience and express deeper sorrow than people who don't rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord means putting your confidence in Jesus. We saw this back in chapter 3 when Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to contrast rejoicing in the Lord with putting your confidence in anything other than Jesus. Remember when we talked about you some pretty salty language too. If we were to ask Paul, hey Paul, if, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you tell God? And Paul says, well, I used, I'll tell you what I would have said. What I used to say, I used to put my confidence in myself. I would have said, you know what, you should let me in because of my faithfulness in religion, because of my sincerity, because of my doctrine and my zeal and my my moral life. I give to the poor, I study your word, I pray and worship. But now, 
I know Jesus showed me that would not have gotten me into heaven. Now I see that all of my righteousness is dung. He writes that. It's in the Bible. He says, all of my good deeds are filled with sinful motives. I'm totally unworthy to enter heaven. All I have is Jesus. He lived a perfect life for me and died the death that I should have died. And even though I am more sinful than I ever imagined, through Jesus, I am far more loved, accepted, and welcomed in heaven than I ever dreamed. Paul is saying we must put our confidence in Jesus, in Jesus alone. In the midst of the battle, Jesus is the one that wins the battle for us so that we can rejoice. So let me ask you, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of everything that's messed up, do we rejoice? Do we rejoice? Most of us think the way Paul used to. And we say, I know that I'm a Christian because I do this, that, and the other thing. Or I know I'm a Christian because I don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? That's not Christianity. That's not trusting Jesus. That is trusting in yourself. So what's all that have to do with stress? Everything. Why do we get stressed out? Because we put our confidence in something other than Jesus. And whatever that is, if it's threatened or taken away, pow, and we get clobbered with, with stress and it shakes our confidence. It knocks the wind out of you. It hits at the very foundation of what we're looking to to satisfy our, our, our deepest desires. And so when the pressure is on, we can now, because of Jesus, we can now take our confidence out of these other things that are constantly letting us down as good as they may be and find our confidence in Christ. The pressure is painful, but it's not pointless. The second way he says we can practice the presence of Jesus is to be gentle before the Lord. Verse 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, why does Paul throw gentleness in there? Well, I think the key is to notice that immediately Paul adds, the Lord is near. And why does he link gentleness so closely with the Lord's presence? Because the awareness of the Lord's presence will, if you are aware of the Lord's presence, it will lead you to be gentle. And God can use the act of gentleness to lead to awareness of the Lord's presence. Here's the deal. Here's what I, I've learned. That gentleness under pressure is faith in action. Gentleness under pressure is faith in action. I do not get this naturally myself. I was... I was a linebacker, so when the pressure's on, whatever's going on, I want to, like, tackle it and drive it into the ground. And I'm not very gentle. My family knows this. 
So, you know, when our closet flooded and everything got moldy and we moved everything into the garage and then the garage flooded and then we had to move out of the house and we put everything in storage and then it rained and there were holes in the trailer and water was going inside the trailer of all of our stuff. I had to ask my family to pray for me (laughs) because a lack of joy is evidence of a lack of faith. And if my faith is going to be strong, I need people like my family who love me to pray for me, remind me of who Jesus is and what he has done in order to put everything else into perspective, right? Many of you are going through difficult things, far more difficult than that, and you have been a better example than I have been, and I thank you for that. When you are aware of the Lord's presence, it cultivates a gentleness in your heart. Paul here, he's under incredible pressure, isn't he? I mean, he planted this church, poured his life into it, and then he was arrested and beaten and whipped almost to death and then locked up in a dungeon. And now, as we saw in our last sermon, his church is being torn apart by these two leaders and it's possible that all of his work could just go straight down the drain. You would think that, that, that the Apostle Paul would just blast these two people who are causing problems. Now, he does correct them, but with amazing gentleness. He starts by saying back in verse 1, addressing them, My brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, my dear friends. He was calm under intense pressure, even to people who were messing everything up. How can Paul be so gentle with them? Because he knows the Lord is near. He knows that God is involved in all of this. I mean, these, he knows that these are people who are made in God's likeness. These are people for whom Jesus died. These are people that God loves. God is at work here. He is at work in and through them, and even in ways that, that we don't understand. And so, and reacting in gentleness just doesn't come naturally to us. You know what happens? When we're stressed, I, Maybe it's just me, but when I'm stressed, I get incredibly self-centered. It's so easy for me to focus on my needs and my rights and my feelings and my comfort and what I want to happen. And it's so easy to, to reduce difficult people as to reduce them to nothing more than like a, a rock in your shoe that you just got to get out of there. And so it's so easy to get impatient and insensitive, and unloving towards the people around us, and it just adds more fuel to the stress. But we do that anyway. And Paul says to reduce the stress, let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Because the Lord is near. The Lord is at work. He is sovereign. He is in control. It doesn't depend on you anyway. He simply calls us to to trust him. 
And when we trust him, you'll know it because you'll treat difficult people with dignity and respect. Gentleness under pressure is faith in action. Third way we can practice the presence of Jesus is simply to talk to the Lord. He says in in verse 6 this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. A life insurance company, uh, this is stats been around everywhere. A life insurance company discovered that people who attend church services every single week live on an average 5.7 years longer than the average person. So be here next week, right? <laughs> the week after that and the week after that. Why are, 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 why are they living longer? Well, part of it is that they're more inclined to pray than to worry. I mean, that's critical in reducing stress. And here's, what's, here's what jumps out. He says, make your, your request known with thanksgiving. He emphasizes thanksgiving because, you know what? When we're stressed out, it's real easy to just stop praying completely because, you know, it didn't work. We rubbed the genie bottle and nothing happened. Or our prayers get reduced to complaining and venting. So Paul emphasizes with thanksgiving. Again, look at Paul. He is deeply concerned about his church in in Philippi. They're experiencing persecution. His church is experiencing financial burdens. His church is experiencing strained relationships. His church is being subjected to the influence of false teachers who are distorting the gospel. And what does Paul do? Yeah, he writes this letter, but he also prays with thanksgiving. Instead of complaining about the church, he gives thanks for them. And this is, one of my, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I love that. You know, when, when we're under pressure, uh, we usually focus on the problems, right? And our prayers get stripped of thanksgiving and filled with complaints. But practicing the presence of Jesus means that you learn to see God's hand in it. The most amazing hymns, the most worshipful spirituals were written by people in the midst of war and tragedy and slavery, mass disease. There's a a, a man named Horatio who lived in the uh, mid-1800s and uh, he lived in uh, Chicago. He's a very successful lawyer and um, he invested in all kinds of properties, became very, very rich. He and his wife and his son and four daughters were just living um, just the good life. And then uh, there was a famous fire that happened in Chicago that wiped out his investments. And then when his son was four years old, his son got scarlet fever, 
and died. And a couple years later, he suggested to his family, I think we need a vacation. He decided that his family would go to, uh, to England because his, his buddy, Dale Moody, was preaching over there, and they'd go see him preach over in, over in England. He got delayed because of business, and so he sent his wife and his four daughters on, on the boat ahead of him. And while they were um, on the boat crossing the Atlantic Ocean, another ship crashed into them, and 266 people died. He heard about uh, the accident, didn't know what happened to his family until he got a telegram from his wife that just said, saved alone. He lost all four of his daughters. They were 11 years old, 9 years old, 5 years old, and 2 years old. So he bought a ticket um, to uh, cross the Atlantic to go be with his, his wife. And he took the same route, passed over the same area where his four children, had, his four daughters had died. And it was on that trip that he wrote the lyrics to It Is Well With My Soul. I mean, words like, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he goes on to sing about the riches that we have in Christ, the forgiveness of sin and life eternal with God. And then at the end, he says, And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. How can he write that? Lost his money, lost his son, lost his four daughter. How could he write that? He was focusing on who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is doing to turn everything wrong in the world right and the hope that we have in him, the life that we have in him, that there is more to life than this world. And the riches we have in Christ, the rewards, even in, especially in the, the midst of the battle, the struggles, the hard times, are beyond what we might imagine. It seems impossible at first, but we begin by taking the things we worry about and we look at them through the lens of Christ until we can honestly give thanks to God. The most effective relief when when, when the pressure is on. Our circumstances seem to be just sucking the joy out of, out of your life. The, the most effective thing I have ever experienced is maybe kind of a sanctified stubbornness to worship. So in the midst of our struggle, we rejoice in the Lord and we're gentle before the Lord. We talk to the Lord. And it is only possible if we think about the Lord. Let's unpack that a bit. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such 
things. And when he says think about such things, Paul uses the word logizomai, which is where we get our word logic. It means to think or consider or reason. You know, when you, look, when you read through the short book of Philippians, words like joy and rejoice show up 17 times in the short letter. That's, that's why it's called the epistle of joy. But words like know and remember and consider these cognitive, thinking, reasoning words show up at least 27 times. You know what that means? It means that joy has less to do with the absence of pressure and more to do with how we think about the pressure. Paul says, if we have lost our joy, the problem is not necessarily whatever struggle you find yourself in the, in the middle of. The problem is with our thinking. The problem is with our logic. The solution is not a change in our circumstances. It is a change in our thinking. It is a change in our focus. If we focus our thoughts on the circumstances, if we focus our thoughts on the struggle, that becomes the central reality through which we interpret everything else in our life, including God. If we focus on the problems, everything looks bad, including God. We know that's true. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was under incredible pressure when he wrote this. I mean, he's an activist. He had great plans for spreading the grace and truth of God and planting churches. Now he's, now he's in chains in a, a dark, damp dungeon in Rome, and he could be beheaded soon. I mean, imagine knowing you're on death row, knowing that you're innocent. If Paul dwelled on the injustice, if Paul dwelled on the nightmare that is his life right then, if he focuses on that, what would happen to Paul? He would be filled with doubt, right? He'd be filled with anger. He'd be filled with bitterness. He'd be filled with fear. He'd be filled with, with despair. And his view of God would be absolutely distorted. And he would look at God through the lens of his hard times and struggles and everything that's wrong. God becomes distorted and we think, well, then he's either not loving or he's not in control. Because we're looking at God through the lens of our messed up circumstances. Paul doesn't fall into that thinking. He focuses his thinking on the one who is true, on the one who is noble, on the one who is right, who is pure, who is lovely, who is admirable, who is excellent and praiseworthy. Jesus is the central reality that brings perspective and clarity on everything, including the nightmare that he's living in. So what he does is he changes the lenses. Instead of looking at God through the lens of everything that's messed up, he switches the lens and he looks at everything that's messed up through the lens of Jesus to get perspective that he needs. And he remembers the grace of Jesus and the riches of Christ, the strength that we have in him, the love that he has for us. And it fills his heart with joy because he's worshiping God for who he is and what he has done for him. And he knows that he can have peace and joy in the middle of, these, of this incredible pressure because he knows that Christ is using these difficult circumstances, even if he doesn't fully understand it, he doesn't have to, he knows that God is using these difficult circumstances to advance the gospel in the world and bring glory to God. I mean, what could be better than that? 
Now listen, I know some of you, I know that some of you are in the middle of some very intense, difficult struggles. I mean, there's very real pain that probably leaves scars for the rest of your life. And it could be real easy to look at all of life, including God, through the lens of everything that's painful and, and messed up. You're feeling the pressure of these difficult circumstances or a strained relationship or unfulfilled longings. And you're filled with fear, or frustration, or bitterness. Um, afraid that you're going to miss out on something that you desire deeply or something that you think that you need. And, and the issue is this, in the midst of it, okay? The issue is this. What will you focus your, your thinking on? Will you focus on, on the pressure and the pain or will you be focusing on, on Jesus? What will become the central reality through which you interpret your life? Everything that's messed up? Or the one who is praiseworthy? If you focus your thoughts on the struggle, you will have a messed up view of God thinking that Jesus doesn't even really love you or he's not even in control. But... If you focus your thoughts on Jesus, what do we see? We see a cross and a crown. We see Christ crucified and exalted. At the center of reality, we see a throne. And on the throne is a king who is in complete control of every area of your life, every detail of life, but also he is a king with scars. A king who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And it is settled once and for all time that he is, in fact, both loving and strong. And so when you look through Jesus to your pressure and your problems, it's only then that we can see God using it to advance the gospel. I mean, I don't know how, and we may not know exactly how until we see Jesus face to face, and he tells us, but we can trust him. We know that it's true, because my Jesus loves me, and he is in control. Worst case scenario, I get the guillotine, and I'm brought into the fullness of Jesus' presence. Okay, so let me ask you. How are you doing in these four areas? None of us do them perfectly, do we? We struggle with all of them. And I know this too, that those of you who are going through hell right now, there can be nothing more frustrating than a good example, right? <laughs> you look at somebody else who's like, I don't know, posting on Facebook about what a great example they are, or something. <laughs> I don't know. People do that. And then it, it just frustrates you. And then you feel like a loser. And Paul is a great example. And, you know, when you compare yourself to great examples, it can stress you out. <laughs> maybe you're exhausted and overwhelmed, and maybe you're just tired and you just want to rest and you want to know it's okay. What do you do? Just white knuckle it? You just, just try harder? I will have joy. I will have peace. 
Or maybe you just give up. I think this is it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for passages like Psalm 23. It says, that reminds us that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. You can read that and believe it and rest in the love of God. You can rest in the fact that your shepherd will not let you go. We can rest in the fact that Jesus is not just our perfect example. He is our Savior. He went to the cross for us so that we can be forgiven for all of the times we don't do these four things. And we can now be clothed in his perfect record, his righteousness. He, he did this so that you and I will never have to experience that ultimate pressure of God's wrath that would ultimately destroy us. This truth, this grace, this gospel, this is what makes us a new people. This is the good news that saves us. It is the good news that changes us because it changes our thinking, it changes our heart, and that changes our lives. I don't know what it is that you're going through right now. But the central reality, whether you feel like it right now or not, the central reality is the king of kings, and he is in control, and he has the scars to prove that he loves you, and he will never let you go. So you can enjoy him, and you can rest in him, and you can thank God even in the midst of of pressure and rejoice, genuinely rejoice in the Lord. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving truth. We thank you so much that, that our joy does not depend on us. The best joy is the joy of the Lord. It is life-giving joy. God, I, I pray on behalf of, of our church, I, I pray that you would forgive us for putting our trust in other things other than Jesus. Please forgive us for that. Help us to see how destructive that is. And God, I pray that you would enable us to um, find life-giving repentance by turning from the things that constantly let us down anyway and to turn to you and to trust you. You're the only one that can save us. You're the only one that can change us. You're the only one that can sustain us. You're the only one that can give us uh, the perspective we need when the world is falling apart around us. It's so easy to watch the news and become so hopeless or to look around just maybe even just in our family and our, our, our closest relationships and see the brokenness that sin causes. It's so easy for us to look at you through the lens of everything that's going wrong 
and then just have a, a disdain for you. Forgive us. Help us to look at the world through the lens of who you are and what you've done for us. And may it lead us to worship you. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. God, I pray if there's anybody here that, that has never put their faith and trust in you, that this, that this morning in response to your truth of who you are and what you've done, that they would turn to you and that they would trust you for the very first time to be the forgiver of their sin, the Lord, the ultimate leader in their life, give them the courage to follow you. We know, we pray to you for that because we know that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. God, we, we pray that you would enable us to worship even in a broken world. We pray this in your name.